Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse and talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Just head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Hart is looking for a designer in either Columbus, Ohio or Toledo, Ohio. Flyleaf Creative is looking for a mid-level graphic-slash-visual designer in New York City. Major League Baseball is looking for a principal product designer in New York City or Boulder, Colorado. And Fly.io is looking for a site reliability engineer. This is a remote position. For just $99, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Jeffrey Henderson, founder of the creative agency And Them in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So I'm Jeffrey Allen Henderson. I'm a creative based in Harlem, New York. Um, Team of about 10. We take on everything from product design to content creation. How's the year been going so far? Ooh, the year's actually been pretty good. We actually had a nice growth year, not in terms of, say, business. Business has always been pretty standard, even when we went through like trials and tribulations of COVID. But I think I brought in some young folks for the first time and made it official kind of last year. And so we had some growing pains in terms of people just learning how to be creatives in like sort of corporate settings and non-corporate settings. So that was very new to a lot of us and having an agency built like that. This year has been, uh, I think, an extension of that. But now that everything's opening, I mean, the team is definitely more seasoned. It's a lot mm-hmm. more it's exciting because of the things I know we can take on. So it's been pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure people listening can hear the birds in the background. So like, it sounds like you're in like some idyllic <laughs> spot right now which is good which is good i think I'll after the year the no 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 no. after after the year i think all of us have had a little bit of uh of mother nature is is gladly welcome at this point do you have any like plans for the summer with the agency 
Oh, this summer we're, well, we're trying to get back together during, I guess, January of this year, we had pretty much all 10 folks in Harlem, essentially about five of them stayed in. We have a studio here, an apartment that we actually rent out as an Airbnb, but when we don't, it's actually our studio. So everybody was sort of Hmm. working together. And that was, I guess, when the world was still kind of closed. And so we're going to try to do a little bit of that again, since we can't really travel to the places we need to travel to get work done. We're going to just come back to New York, settle down and like keep growing. Nice. Now with and them and sort of the, the changes that have happened over the past year, I mean, you say business has been pretty steady and I know that you do a number of different services. Can you just talk a little bit about like what and them is and how did you come up with the name and them? So, and them comes from when I was a Nike employee in Japan, I had a lot of, I don't know, free time in the mornings where I would have to work with the team that was in the US. And so during those phone calls, every now and again, I'd have like an hour in between. And there was a creative by the name of Kevin Carroll. He had just left Nike and written a book, uh, Rules of the Red Rubber Ball. Oh, Yeah. So he became sort of internet famous at that point, hired a team. He had about six people doing everything from PR to creative strategy. And he had been working with them for about three, four months and it just wasn't clicking. And so he ended up calling, I think myself, Jason Maiden, who's now at uh, Fear of God Athletics, Dwayne Edwards, who runs Pencil. And he's like, yo, can you like just sit on these meetings and help me out? But I don't want to threaten my team. So he started introducing us as like, you know, it's just Jeff and him. It's just Dwayne and him, like just, you know, kind of nonchalantly. And so the joke was we just became and them, like this nebulous <laughs> people who just sort of helped. And so I just kept it, kept the name because it also represented the fact that when we work with, I don't know, whether it's Yeezy or FC Harlem or local restaurant around the corner, Mm-hmm. We're not trying to showcase like our brand. We're trying to showcase your brand. So if we were doing something with Revision Path, it would be Revision Path and them. It's just us trying to help out folks who sort of need, I think, a boost. Um, so, ooh, sorry. I live right down the street from Harlem Hospital. So there's always a siren. Uh, That's okay. Now and then. In the last year, we definitely picked things up because what really happened was, this is probably three years ago now, I was working on a project launching Everlane's new footwear line that they put out the tread. Mm-hmm. And while I'm working on it, Michael Prizman, the CEO, he keeps asking me, like, how do you do X, Y, Z? And I'd be like, oh, you just call this person. And it, like, I just saw him asking questions. And he kept looking at me like, you have all these people. Why don't you set up an agency? And I was like, yeah, no, nah, that's too much responsibility. Like, I did all that when I was like, <laughs> like at Nike, having reports, like it was all just too much. But a year later, it was like, okay, all these people who, and it sort of came by, honestly, in that people who were working on teams individually when I got there, they just sort of were like, yo, can I do a project with you? Do you have any more? And so I just kind of brought them with me. So they kind of became my and them. So I just, if we were on a call, I'd be like, yo, why don't you sit on this call? Why don't you take this? And if there's money left on the table, we'll split it. So that's sort of just evolved to the fact that I just had a few really talented young folk who probably weren't either seasoned in corporate or had already tried corporate. It was like something just wasn't feeling right about it. And so they were like, I'd rather hang out with you, work on projects. So mm-hmm. that became normal. So we were doing a lot of product design, graphic design. And then one of my best friends, creative director who 
he taught himself to be sort of art director, holding the camera. He was doing, working at a not-for-profit, basically counseling kids and got a camera. And we were coaching this basketball team together. And he said, you know, my dream is I want to shoot the NBA and the Olympics. And he's like, that's my long-term dream. That's, that's what I want to do in life. Three years later, he ended up doing that. Like, it was all sort of like <laughs> this whirlwind of like, he worked for the Knicks. He shot for FIBA in Brazil, the Olympic basketball game. He's like, oh, I should have made my dreams a little bigger than that. And so he sort of come on with his team. So all together, we tackle soup to nuts, anything from product creation, manufacturing to content creation. So that's kind of who we are and what we do. It sounds like it all kind of came together pretty easily. I mean, since you had already this network of, of people and you had creatives that were drawn to you because of your work, it sounds like it didn't take much to kind of build the team. I think it really goes back to one of the things that happened, I think, in my old Nike days, it was very much this thought of you kind of were put on a track or a plan to be a design manager or a design director. And so a lot of times people would be put in design manager roles so they could kind of learn, I don't know, the procedures, the processes, the operations part so that when they became a design director, they at least know what those things were as they started looking at bigger picture in terms of product creation. And so I kind of took a big tune to what the operation side was. And so I was, I think I learned from some really great people who just knew how to grow and manage people because I needed a lot of that because I was literally making shit up as I went. Uh, I didn't have a design degree. So anybody who could help me, I was in their office left and right trying to figure out how I screwed up. So I just took those lessons. And while I was, I guess, working on the creative side, building all those other kind of tools and components taught me how to get the most out of people and how to help them get the most out of themselves. And so when I ended up in like random spots, I wasn't just worried about, you know, is the color right? Is the engineering proper? Is like the functionality working? Is design like modern? It was also like, how are you doing as a person? Like, are you doing the right thing? And so it really like became, I didn't realize it was that obvious until this young woman, Lauren Devine, who's a great material designer. I was working with her at Yeezy. And this was probably early days. We were like over in some like broken down office building. And I was probably in and out of LA for maybe, I don't know, a year. And then one day, I guess I didn't show up for three months because I was either doing something else or just didn't need to be there. And I got there and she came and gave me a big hug. She's like, finally, you're back, our manager. And I was like, you're what? Like, I'm literally <laughs> over here just drawing shoes. What do you mean? She was like, no, no, no. We need like this set up and this meeting organized and this, that, and the other. And this is what you do. And I was like, um, okay, I honestly sign up for that. But the reality was I did sign up for that. I mean, I just became mentor to a few people who just sort of needed the ins and outs every now and again. It wasn't like I was their manager, manager, but I was, I don't know, helpful in helping them get things straight when they needed it. Especially if you weren't in a traditional corporate environment where people were set to be your manager and mentor. Uh, So that sort of, I think, turned into an easier way to then run this sort of organization that we just pick projects and started out really me just knowing some people who were like, yo, you want to do this project? Yeah, I got nothing better to do. But (laughs) I mean, it's real. Like I end up falling in love with things that I know nothing about just because it's different. Like we have a project now with a friend of mine. She's CEO at uh, this wellness brand wellness and beauty called Ace of Air. And it's all about circularity, sustainability. And the reality is like, I walked into the conversation going, look, I'm not like a big sustainability dude. That's not my thing thing. I kind of know about it. And I'm more interested in it because I'm 
I've learned over the last, I think, two years how much it affects black and brown communities first. And so I have a little bit of interest in it, but I can't say it's like I wake up every day like, oh, I care about this. But ever since being in this project, like now I'm like forced to like, oh, this is real. And I go into the grocery store, I see tons of plastic and I'm like, oh, how do I fix? How do I help? How do I like lend air um, to these conversations? So it just becomes a, I don't know, we find ourselves in new conversations that are helpful because I think it's, it helps us to become creative, but it also lends, we have a skill set that we were using somewhere else that now we can apply to something that we all care about. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, especially when you have a, a collective like that, that's what's important is that you're able to bring your expertise and the mind trust of the people that you're working with to a project or to a brand. It's not necessarily that you've done it before, but the collective knowledge is enough where you can go into the project and still know what needs to be done. No, I think that's very true. I think our, I don't know, collective unit has heard enough, I don't know, questions, concerns from enough people. I think some of the more senior folks on our team, like we've heard it before. It's very enlightening that we have sort of like these 22 year olds who chime in knowing that, look, I don't know everything, but here's what I'm thinking. And it's sort of like, it brightens up our eyes to go, oh, like never would have occurred to like the old crowd in the room as to think about things like that because like we're not digital natives or we're not focused in certain places. We don't go to certain parties. We don't hang out in certain worlds. And I think they end up bringing something new to the table while absorbing like what we offer them. And so when they get to touch base and go, oh, let's see what Lowy Frames is like, a place that does like fine art restoration and gilded frames. That is a new conversation for all of us. But the young folk, they, they don't realize it's new to us. Like they just, everything is new to them. So kind of eye-opening to watch them grow. And, you know, and one thing that is really, I think, important to note here for people that are listening to is that, like, these are young creatives and you're giving them the ample space to make these sorts of decisions or determinations or comments or observations. It sounds like in a safe environment, like if they say something that may not go over well with the client or something, they're not like immediately axed, I would imagine. Like it's sort of a, they have a space to, to fail, which I think as a young creative is probably important to have because there can be so much out, sort of like outdo pressure placed on black and brown creatives to kind of be brilliant right out the gate and not make mistakes. I think it is sort of, I mean, the conversation we we're having before we got on here about the, I think understanding of what it means to be black in any corporate environment, to be brown in any corporate environment, the idea that this is like a second culture, a second language that you have to like bring to the table and learn. I think so often the idea of assimilation or the idea of fitting in or not making people uncomfortable, like it was so ingrained. And I I think, and the reality is, I think I was trying to be part of that. Like in the nineties, I just wasn't really good at it because I was trying to go, Ooh, okay. I know your music. I noticed that. And I really didn't because I really wasn't listening to it. But I think there's this innate need to sort of like see if you could fit in. And our group is like, we don't really have that as much as like, you need to know this part of the culture in order to do the job. If you don't, don't sweat it. I mean, if you make a mistake as you're going through, because it's all different and it's all new, then pay attention. And I think that's the part where I, from all my failures of like walking into situations and not knowing, my first days like going from Nike to Kohan, where it was like, I was making sports shoes and that's all I knew to like, oh, now we're making like a small number, like Nike, the minimum you could do in a shoe was like 30,000 pairs of shoes. I got the Kohan and I was like, oh, we do 30,000 pairs. And they were like, we'll like all be celebrating if we do 30,000 pairs. Like, we're happy to get 6,000. Like, 
it's just a different mindset. And I didn't know. And I think I kind of have this, I'm happy to open my mouth and sound dumb 10 times out of 10, just because let's get it out the way. Cause I don't want any assumptions of me walking out the room, not really knowing. I think having my team watch me say stupid things all the time. And I do it more <laughs> almost for their entertainment. I still call it Tic Tac. I still talk about things old guy, just so they know, like, I'm not afraid to sound stupid in a meeting and you should be okay. Because as long as you know what you're supposed to know and you do your homework, you'll be good. And I think that's, it's really, I think, uplifting to see these young black and brown folk be able to hold their weight and go into conversations as well as watching whoever the client is kind of go, oh, y'all know what y'all doing. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we do. It's all good. I mean, I think it's, I mean, honestly, just for me as, as a designer, as a self-taught designer, like that's just even great to hear. I mean, I've had other studio owners and such that have been on the show and I've even talked to like just studio owners through AIGA and other design organizations. And like, it's true. Like sometimes if there is a leading creative at the head, like you would be with, with and them, there's almost this like need for them to come off as the creative expert. Like they have to be the captain of the ship and you are, mm-hmm. you know, the captain of your ship, but at least what you're showing is that you've built enough camaraderie with your crew. So you all can come together and work on things. And it's not just like you dispatching people to do work. You know what I mean? No, it's definitely. Um, I think and you talked about it, like getting people to come in and do podcasts. Like I think there's on top of being black or brown in the industry, I think the conversation around being a creative also comes with a certain I don't know, expectation, like you may actually be an introvert or you might actually just get put in boxes and like the sales team and marketing team be like, oh, well, don't talk to them till you want to have something creative and cool, but then you want to drag the cool out of them. And mm-hmm. I think to me, that's sort of like kind of puts folks in a box. They're afraid to talk. There's like a lot of this, that, and the third. And I think I was lucky enough to be placed in environments where I like, for real in the last two years that's when and my friends laugh all the time like i don't want to be on podcasts i don't want to talk i never want to hear myself talk like we talked about this. Like, <laughs> it's just that's just what it is but i also know that like folks are like yo i learned something from you can you do that more often it's like all right it's just easier if i like i can't call everybody on the phone so here's a podcast and i'm just gonna ramble on i think for hours at a time but i think the idea that someone can offer you an opportunity to stand up in a meeting and give your options. And I, I was at Nike and I do believe I should have been like, not fired, but somebody should have, could have reprimanded me over and over, but they were like, yo, this is, this is how you grow. And these are the bullets you take. You just come mm-hmm. in and like say something. And I think there was like quite a few people like who were at Nike, like, oh, they didn't say it, but I kind of felt it like, oh, like Jeff's getting run because he's black or he gets to go in there. Like I could be completely wrong, but yo, that's how I felt. Like some mm-hmm. people were thinking that. But I also know some people are like, yo, he's in the room because he's bringing something different and all y'all had the same skill set. So even if it's not what you think is the right answer, we're going to let him go. And if it doesn't work, cool. But if it does work, it's going to work in a much different way than you guys. And I think I was given enough room, like the fact that I went in to quit when I was at Nike because I was feeling like this wasn't going to the right place. And they sent me to basically run Footwear Studio in Japan. And I was like, Okay. Like that was, (laughs) it was wild, but I think that was, it's a, it's a case where there were the right people in the right rooms who were talking about this a lot, like the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. And I'm kind of back in mentor mode, but I think having the idea and notion, I started understanding once I got that higher 
don't know, clip at Nike that I didn't have to be somebody's mentor. I just needed to go in the rooms and be like, why aren't you highlighting this person's work? And basically looking at people like they were wrong if they didn't. I didn't know whether they were doing good work or not. I was just asking them. Like, and if they felt guilty about it, I should probably tell them something. Um, yeah. But I think that level of like sponsorship became important. And even though the mentoring was there, but I think having, and I know people who did that for me, it was either told to me after, or I sort of knew, or I know that I would get no, 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 no. Then it'd get quiet for about a month. And the next thing be like, hey, we think you should do this opportunity. Like, all right, <laughs> somebody says something clearly somebody says something like so that i think is a part that seeing more of that from folks in or outside corporate work is just kind of important yeah now and them does a lot of different things it's hard to i guess sort of pinpoint <laughs> exactly what you do like if you go to the website for example and click on faq it's it's questions that sort of allude to the services that you could provide, like developing products, designing products, shooting action, shooting commercial, shooting style, making logos. Like these are all services that we can do as long as you're, I guess, sort of asking the question on what is it that we can do for you for your project? Yo, I love you. You do all your homework. So the <laughs> reality is like our our main strengths is we have people who like help build Nike product, Easy product, Everlane, especially footwear. Like that's our main bag. And then I kind of went out of my way. Like when projects and apparel came out, I was like, yo, I need people who know how to do this. And I just saw that. Like, I literally went on LinkedIn and was like, black and brown people who do apparel, please check here. The funniest joke about a member of our team, Shauna Kay, is I was in the line at FedEx on 125th. And in walks behind me, Dapper Dan's assistant, Ashley. And I look at her, she looks at me and she's like, what do you want, Jeff? Like, like I was just looking at her like I wanted something. I was like, I need a black <laughs> woman. And she was like, I know who you need. Like, it, we didn't discuss exactly what I meant by that. Like, that could have gone a thousand different ways. But essentially, <laughs> I was like, I want a black woman creative who is just starting out because we need to round out this team. And we didn't have that on our team. And she was mm-hmm. like, you need to meet Shauna Kay, just finished FIT. She's looking for work. Yeah, yeah. Boom. That was probably on a Friday. Met Shauna Kay on a Tuesday. We had our first meeting to work on a Friday. Like, wow. that's how quickly it went. But I think that's the part where we knew we had product creation folks. I wanted more folks to kind of round that out. And then John Lopez on his side, again, he's shooting Olympics, worked for the Knicks. He's like dragging me around like, yo, I just rented this $70,000 camera for a day, Jeff. Let's go out and have some fun. Like, okay, I don't know what that means. But <laughs> let's so being able to do like those big specific things were important, but we had both like worked at like meaningful places. And then we brought in um, Brie Lavoisier, who is sort of like keeps us all sane, like as a kind of design manager, project manager, kind of everything. And so what ends up happening, people are like, yo, can you do this? Can you do that? And it's like, well, I remember when I first left Kohan, I was sort of like free to do anything. And I was like, I am not designing shoes ever again. Like that was my thing I want to do since high school. I was going to design shoes. So I had a good 15 year ride of doing that. I was like, yo, I'm going to do everything else. I'm done doing shoes, like start my new life. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to do branding, graphics, marketing, whatever it is. I'm not going to do shoes anymore. Two months after that, I was like doing, I was on a plane to go do music. Like it was just ingrained in me. But in those two months, I started writing more. I started this random e-com site with a bunch of my friends just to sell t-shirts basically to ourselves called Good Things. And so I was learning like how e-com works. I was learning a little bit about SEO and digital and all these other pieces that just started to round out. And as 
I started getting deeper into conversations. I was like, oh, like once you get through that first layer, you kind of know enough to be dangerous. And then we started taking on projects. And like our learning path really came with working with kind of nonprofits and uh, small businesses because like I didn't know how to make a website do anything. But there was a restaurant that I ate at pretty much three times a month, four times a month. He's like, yo, I need a website. Okay, let's build it. Let's figure out what that looks like. Let's figure out all the pieces behind it. And so working with people to kind of figure out and small business and nonprofits to kind of learn at least the lingo, uh, how it works sort of brought us to like the stage of, oh, now with our knowledge of like, I don't know, anything from Nike to the New York Knicks and NBA and easy, like, oh, okay, we can start taking this to more people in different ways. And definitely either being, and this is the conversation we were having before, like, intentionally, this is going to be a black and brown group of people working on stuff. And so you can hire us intentionally because you want black and brown. You can hire us intentionally because you want a diverse opinion. We can just hire us because we're good. We don't really care. We're going to come <laughs> in. And it's going to have, like, we jokingly laugh. Like, we had to do a photo shoot. And we're like, oh, yo, who knows somebody white? Like, we can't just. Because <laughs> 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 it was for a brand. And it, it was. This wasn't a like we're trying to cross over. It was like it was literally for a brand that has, I mean, all the founders are white. And it's like, yo, we don't want them to look like they're doing blackface by, oh, everybody in their ad is black or brown. Like it should be pretty diverse. But in order to be diverse, we're going to throw some white folks in there. Who, mm-hmm. Like we look across the room like, who do we know? <laughs> it was this funny game of like, we don't know no white folks. But I just have to pause there. That is. <laughs> To me, that is hilarious because the inverse of that probably happens in every creative studio at least once a week. Yeah. (laughs) So we are like the exact opposite. And one of the things that's like amazing is we had a basketball shoot and this happens pretty much with every client, especially of color. And some say it like, and they either say it day one or they say it at least when they get to a photo shoot or we put product on the table is that one of the models came out. We had a shoot that was supposed to go from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. in the park. We had some gear set up. We got a shoot like when it got dark. We all showed up one time at 2 o'clock. We were getting shots in. And 8 o'clock, it was like pitch dark. Like, this was fall. Nah, it was probably like 9 o'clock. We're still out there, still shooting, getting night shots. And one of the models, like, he was leaving on the bike. He was like, yo. And I had to record him saying, he was like, yo. Like... I've been in shoots before and sometimes it's your homeboy and it's cool. And we all hanging out and the, the end product is like, okay. And sometimes I'm at like these professional shoots and it's all good. We all know each other and we're good, but you know, I'm in and I'm out because it's work to do. He was like, this was like the party with real work. He was like, y'all on to something. And it's that vibe that again, we're doing things like in ways because we don't know any better. Like we'll do it professionally. We'll have the call sheets up. We'll have all the emails, the testing codes, all the protocol, You'll look up and breathe because she's worked at like startups and set up organization things like, oh, you got to sign your paperwork. You don't do the insurance. You ain't showing up. At the same time, we'll be out there like enjoying each other's company in a way that's like relaxed in a barbecue sort of atmosphere, which a lot of folks look at like, I, I don't know. But then what ends up happening, like, and we laugh is like the young crew, they're like, yo, they go get an internship somewhere else. And they're like, this is the same. <laughs> this is not what, what we're doing over here. And I'm like, Okay, well, we get some more projects and we can tackle some more work for you. So we're doing something and having fun, but it's definitely it's definitely the other side of the coin in terms of it's just black and brown and it's kind of what it looks like. I mean, what it really sort of boils down to, I think, is is two things. One, you're introducing to these creatives at at sort of the beginning 
stages of their career, a new possibility for what work can be, which is, or for what creative work can be, which is that it's infused with play. Like we've had a lot of people on the show that are like in the advertising industry and, and such. And they always talk about like the long hours and the shoots and like, none of it sounds fun. Like they're able to be creative, but it doesn't sound like they're really enjoying the job, you know? And like, I think the second thing is that you're inviting in this new tradition of this is what creative work can look like. So you're saying like, yes, you can do this. And also it can be fun. It doesn't have to be stuffy or bureaucratic or anything like that. Like, yes, there are certain protocols that have to get done, but the magic and the the environment that you're able to create is how you get your best work. Yeah. This was probably midway through the pandemic. I, it was maybe three months in and the team was feeling a certain way because we had just, what we had set up, I was looking for like a full studio for us to work out of. This was probably end of 2019. And so because I wasn't finding exactly the space I wanted, I sort of was like feeling a little grumpy about it. At the same time, I was working with um, the spot on 118th, Millbank Children's Aid Society. And it's an after-school program set up in Harlem. Basketball courts, swimming pools, kind of have everything. When Zion uh, Williamson launched the shoe, he did it on the outdoor courts of like Millbank. But it also has like these classrooms. They actually have an on-site nursing office. And so it's pretty well-developed. And so the classrooms need a little update. So I went to like the folks there and were like, look, tell you what, instead of me paying for like a regular lease, I'm just going to update one of these classrooms and we're going to work here in the mornings, like until two when kids show up, would I work? And they, before they, I could even finish, they were like, done, show up, whatever. So we put some big screen TVs in, we put some tables, chairs, like we were getting prepared. Then COVID hit. So we kind of got locked out like everybody else. So the team was feeling a certain way because they had gone to like two meetings and were just getting to know each other. And they were kind of liking the vibe, but like we shut it down too soon. Bree, our project manager, also runs like a community kind of center for like creatives. So she was like, we're going to have book club. So Saturday mornings from nine to 11, like on Saturday morning, their Saturday mornings, we started meeting and having book club. What was happening was there were elements that we're going over the young folks' head just in terms of like, here's things you ought to know, whether it was in design or government or sales or e-commerce, whatever things that need to be had or we need to discuss, we need to discuss it. And so she set up these meetings and by book, it was more of like, here's an article to read or here's a Netflix video to watch. And so we discuss it. And like three or four in, I was like, all right, like what's taken away from their Saturdays? It was like, maybe we should turn it down a little. So we like took a week off. They complain like nobody's business. They were like, yo, like, why are we doing book club? And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay. And some of this was because everybody was sort of quarantined. Everybody was locked away. And so I thought, okay, we'll do this bit because everybody's locked away. Once we all get to go out and see the world, we'll slow it down. Did not stop. Like, it just became this thing that everybody did, did together, had conversations that were sort of like, this is serious. This is a safe space. Everybody got, by then we all know each other. So, like, we give each other grief, like, nonstop. But it's sort of a safe space for creatives to kind of, we show our work on Wednesday. Wednesday afternoon, that's when we talk about work, work, work. But on Saturdays, like, it is not mandatory. Like, some people on the squad, like, they're like, no, I don't need that. Cool. But the other half, they show up religiously. And the other place, they go, well, let me see what the topic is, and then I'll drop by. So it's definitely this added piece of, like, there's just a conversation that, especially for creatives, especially for black and brown folks, being able to, I think, chop it up in that that sense is special. You, know, you kind of have to make space for that. 
I like that there's a section. It's not on the and them site. I think it's on the good things site that's called book club where you sort of have <laughs> some writings and things. I, w- I want to talk about that later. And I know we spent a lot of time talking about and them, but let's kind of shift the focus here because really this interview is about, it's about you. You're originally from Ohio. It's where you grew up. What was it like there? It's funny as my wife and I like laugh about this all the time is that like my wife went to Spelman. So it's, it's okay. a big deal. She's from Philly. She went to Spelman. So she definitely talks about HBCU and what it meant. And it was never like my sister went to Wilberforce. Going to an HBCU was never anything that felt like I needed to do because, and I credit this as like, we're looking at 30 year anniversary or what is it? Yeah. 30. I graduated from high school 30 years ago in 91. And I graduated with, out of the 100 kids in my class, it was 96 Black folk, just Black. Like, West Side of Dayton was just Black, Black, like, Black, 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 like, just all Black. And so, and I would joke with people, it was like, I didn't know white people until I got to college. Like, literally, like, I knew white people from the folk, the few who went to our school uh-huh. who weren't that many. Or I saw them on TV. So I would joke, like, white people were kind of imaginary. Like, it wasn't a real thing. Like, I learned about <laughs> a culture that it just didn't really exist. And I never met anybody who was really like that. And so there's a certain confidence that I had of being only having to worry about my culture. And so when I got to college, when I got to Purdue, it was very much like, oh, here's another culture. And I was like, okay, cool. But now I just care about engineering. Like, all I want to do is get into design and Nike, and I'm supposed to study this. Like, so I never worried about embracing anything other than I'm just going to focus on like school. And so mm-hmm. after two years of like that, or actually after one year, I was like, yeah, I'm done with being in the middle of nowhere. Let's go have some fun. So I moved to Atlanta, nothing but black folk. And so that became a thing. And I think when I left and went to Nike, it was a strange sort of like weird balance of me trying to figure out what was what. And I, I honestly try to and i don't even know how to put it like i was trying to fit in but i guess i wasn't really trying that hard because like everybody i knew was basketball sports marketing brand jordan like it was just all the black and brown people like it was and i kind of hung out with whoever but that's just where i found myself other people who i don't even know if it was like i found them as much as they were like yo we're doing these things you want to come hang out and they were the normal things like whether it was a barbecue or whatever and it was like cool i don't know that i went out of my way but it was this confidence that it none of this really settled in until i moved to harlem like three years ago and when i got to harlem i was like yo this feels just like they know how this feels just like being in atlanta and one of the things that kind of brought it up so we did this project with the apollo and it was about sneakers and about education and someone had was like well we have to tell people like why we're doing something at the apollo around sneakers and i was like no we don't and they were like, well, what do you mean? I was like, we don't have to tell anybody. Like, if you ask somebody about sneakers and they're black, the culture kind of says they're going to tell you something about it. They're going to tell you they couldn't afford something. They're going to tell you they knew somebody who had it. They're going to tell you their own personal story. But mm-hmm. we, we don't have to have a conversation about why, because you're the Apollo. Like, it's blackity, blackity, black, black, black. Like, it's, it's just there. And I think that part, going back to Jefferson Township, Dayton, Ohio, where, like, our Italian immigrant history teacher went out of his way to make sure we understood that Lincoln didn't free the slaves because he liked black people. He went out of his way to make sure like, nah, like this is what you need to hear. And that was just the school we grew up in. So like when I got to other places, I was like, really? That's what y'all are? Whether they were black schools or white schools, like we learned it 
a hundred percent the way I think it's discussed now. So it was never even like a question for me or any of my friends growing up. So it's kind of, I always say, oh, I was like, for me, it was the best place to be from because a little too small for me. So definitely getting out to the rest of the world was meaningful, but I would not replace like with, especially, oh, by the way, like Dayton, Ohio has its own sort of history with like crime and drugs and sneakers and everything else to where like the most prominent sneaker mall in all of America was this small little mall in the West side of Dayton that had the best foot locker sales, like period. Mm. Like it's this, when I got to Nike, salespeople were like, oh, Salem Mall. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yo, they did a lot of business, a lot mm. of business. If you track East St. Louis, Dayton, Ohio, Memphis, it's where Underground Railroad, there were a lot of stops. Mm-hmm. And that was the three major ones. And so that's why Wilberforce and Central State are there. Like it was a lot of black folk who went there. So when drug money started coming and drugs started working their way north, those were the same three places that folks stopped. So Dayton, Ohio kind of grew like music and drugs. Like it was a big, big thing, uh, especially in the late seventies, early eighties. So sidebar. I think we've had one other person on the show from Dayton. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Hannah Beekler. She was episode 300 back in oh, okay. 2019. Oh, okay. Yeah. You said that initially, you kind of like said it really quickly. I was like, wait a minute, who else do I know? On the show has been from Dayton because I remember one. I know there are at least one or two other per- people, but her specifically, I remember because of that episode. But were your parents really like supportive of you going into design? Like, I'm curious. You know, you sort of said before, like if you ask any black person about sneakers, they're kind of they're going to kind of already have a cultural connection to it. So I won't ask you that specifically, but yeah. were your parents kind of behind you going this route with your career? In no way, shape, or form, based on this. So my mother was a teacher. And the reality is she didn't care what I did as long as like I tried my best and did my best. She was the person who like, no matter what it was, she put that art on the refrigerator because you did it and you worked really hard. And she was a middle school teacher. So she kind of had that in her of like, you can do whatever you want. I believe in you, yada, yada, yada. To the point where you almost didn't believe whether she meant it or not because she said it like every day at all times. But you always had someone who was in your corner. So I think my mother wanted it to happen because I wanted it to happen. But you have to realize like this was 1991 sneakers weren't a real thing. It was sort of this side conversation to the point where like, it wasn't until I got to Kohan where the question is like, why does Nike own Kohan? And it's because it wasn't making any money for Nike, the brand. And it was because in 88 still Nike knew that the industry common thought was if you wanted to make money in sneakers, you had to sell brown shoes. Like sneakers didn't make money. And so he bought Kohan in order to make money. Well, fast forward, he and a few other people made sneakers like the regular topic. So sneakers weren't a real thing. And the reality is my father, who I didn't have like the best relationship with, he didn't say anything. Like he watched because I had this engineering, I was getting this engineering degree from some prestigious schools and I had a co-op, I had an internship with AT&T. And he was like, oh, Jeff is set. So he didn't say a word. He just let me be, yada, yada, yada. And so I graduated with a degree in engineering with three years of internships with AT&T. And at that time, AT&T was one of the biggest design engineering companies like in the US. And I did not pursue going to AT&T. I took a job doing blueprints in Beaverton, Oregon. And (laughs) my father didn't say a word. He didn't say a word. The only reason I know I mean, I know he didn't say a word 
But maybe three and a half, four years later, my parents come out to Oregon. I think by that time we had maybe had like our first kid, Dream was like a year old. And they were watching Dream. And so I come home after work. And my father had come to, uh, I don't know if you know anything about Nike campus, but the Michael Jordan building is, it's not center of campus, but it's middle of campus. And right next to it was is this track mm-hmm. it's under the trees. And there's a basketball court right next door. And so my father ran track for the University of Michigan. So I was like, you know, you can go work out and, on the track. Just pull up the car, tell the guard you're there, and like no one will care. And so I guess he did that. And then when I get home after that day, my mother's laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? He's like, your father finally gets it. And I was like, what do you mean he gets it? Now, he had never said anything to me. He never like complained about me working at Nike, nothing. And I was sending him shoes left and right. And <laughs> That's probably why he wasn't complaining. No, I mean, he, he kind of saw it. But again, he was like, my son has an engineering degree. He took his first job doing blueprints at Nike. And then he got a job drawing kids shoes at Nike. And now he's doing basketball shoes. And like, he just, it just didn't, didn't add up in his mind of what, yeah. you know, you get an engineering degree and get like a real job in his mind, um, which was being from Ohio. Like you can go work at a car company and do like, like, what are you mm-hmm. doing out here in like the Pacific Northwest? And I guess he started talking to other runners who were on the track. And my father was a runner and I didn't care anything for running. So he was bonding with the people on the track. He's like, oh yeah, my son works over in design, like over like in that building. Now, as we all know at this point, like designers at Nike are treated like they can walk on water. So when he started saying my son works over in design, two things happened. One, I was like one of four, I don't know, black designers in Nike, all men. So they either knew who I was or they were just like, "Ooh, your son's a designer. And so they started talking to him and he started realizing, oh, maybe this is a thing. And so he started asking what they do and they were rattling off, rattling off things like, oh, well, you know, I just signed a deal for the NBA or I did this and all that, like big things that he actually understood. And at that point, that's when he's like, oh, now, because my father and I didn't have like the tightest relationships, he never said anything to me for or against but from that point on, like, I knew that at least by then, he knew that this wasn't like a mistake that I had made. He knew that like, oh, this was something that was real. So then he wore the shoes with a little more pride. Meanwhile, my brothers were walking around like, oh, yeah, that shoe, my brother designed that shoe. It didn't matter what shoe it was. It, didn't, it, 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 it might not even matter. They were like, yo, yo, my brother did that. You know, my brother, yeah, yeah, my brother, yeah, he did everything. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Every shoe on the basketball court, he did that. Uh, <laughs> Tell me what it was like living in Atlanta when you went to Georgia Tech because you went you lived in Atlanta during I think it's like peak Atlanta it is freak Nick it's the Olympics like and like I think also like the burgeoning hip-hop scene there with like so so deaf and stuff like what was it like being in Atlanta during that time so I was the biggest nerd who didn't care just moved to Atlanta merely to go I'm coming down here. I'm going to find a wife. It's Chocolate City. We're all good hanging out. And I hung out like hard for three years, like as the biggest nerd, like not even like cool whatsoever. And it was everything you just named. It was pre-Olympics. Everybody was gassed up. It was, what is it? My buddy's roommate was a bouncer at the Gold Club. uh, Oh my God. At Magic City. So we would just go sit at the bar with like no money, like just trying yeah. to like, pretend like we fit in, like knowing we had zero money and we just sit at the bar and order like water. That can still happen today. <laughs> <laughs> and we go in just like, because like, he was there, he'd be like, yo, come in, like, because I get bored or whatever. Like, all right, we go up in 10 minutes. But it's like, it's nothing but rich folk in here. It's wild. And we just leave after like 10 minutes. We were just like making sure he was good. But 
like that was the level of everybody was sort of chilling and yeah we went back to atlanta maybe three years after we're like yeah it's not the same my boys like we're still living there and they're like yo you're like yeah it's different now but it was one of those we were yeah. also in college like it, there's nothing that will compare like as an adult to those mm-hmm. three years when we were in college with no real responsibilities other than like mm-hmm. staying alive and making sure you took some classes like between going to school in atlanta and moving to tokyo as an expat like mm-hmm. life is good but those were like check yeah. the box like big time i feel you man like last week actually this this past weekend i was talking to my my best friend from college so i went to morehouse here he and i were just talking because his birth his 40th birthday was last week and my 40th birthday was a couple of months ago and we were kind of just like reminiscing on the past we were looking at old pictures from back then and stuff yeah. it was wild so i was in the auc like right near the turn of the century i came in 99 99 going into 2000 and stuff and i worked for this website <laughs> i worked for this website called college club that was sort of a precursor to facebook and i was one of the campus representatives so like what that entailed was that you went around and you basically captured campus life. We had these big <laughs> Sony Mavica digital cameras that you had to put like a three and a quarter inch floppy disk into <laughs> and like take pictures and stuff. And like, so we were just looking at old pictures and stuff like that from the past. Like, man, it's, it's such a trip how Atlanta has changed since then. Cause yeah, when you're here in college, I mean, and <laughs> I don't know if it was like this at Georgia Tech, but certainly at Morehouse in the AUC, like the clubs would send charter buses to the campus to like pick you up, take you to the club, you go and do whatever you want at the club and they'll bring you right back to campus. So you ain't got to worry about trying to catch Marta or trying to catch a cab or trying to bum a ride from, from somebody to get back, you know. And I Man. had to come down during Frignick and they'd be like, oh, this is amazing. And I was like, no, this is terrible. everybody's like traffic jam and it's all these people from like everywhere like hanging out and it's like yo i can go on a random tuesday to phipps plaza and it'd be balled out like yeah we're good good." and it's just a mall like it's just a mall yeah so i miss that atlanta i mean i can't tell you whether it's change all i know is i'm old now so oh it's changed it's changed <laughs> it has changed so i mean there there might still be that same liveness depending on what the event is and this is probably pre-pandemic mm-hmm. but like now we're probably ending gunshots like there'll probably be some kind of violence that breaks out That's so wild. it's uh wild. yeah it's What's definitely not harlem, the same harlem is kind of trying to figure out where it's going to be in that level which Again, when I moved here, it was sort of like, oh, I'm not sure. We'll figure it out, yada, yada, yada. And the what I really loved about being in Atlanta, and I think it was a combination of the immigrant culture that was there that I didn't know was going to be there. The mm. Atlanta population that was like, it was Atlanta. And then it was like the rest <laughs> of Georgia. And yeah. those three, and if you don't know, like if you just moved there, like you don't know the immigrant population. And I lived off of Buford Highway. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. All right. So, yeah. The food was amazing. And so... Uh, oh, man, I bet. Yeah. That had sort of like... If you don't know Atlanta, those things don't mean anything to you. Harlem is kind of the same way. And so being able to pick up those pieces of going from like, oh, yeah, I miss it. And I didn't really realize it until I got to Harlem and started walking around. I was like, yo, this feels like SWATs. Like, I feel like there's a mall here that's green. Bro. Like, I feel like there's something here. And I think that goes to, like, the creative conversations that I'm having... Like unapologetically, it's like, yo, it's kind of 
black folk. And then I like encourage like one designers, Sarah, she's from uh, Colombia. And I'm like, yo, bring Colombia to, to the projects like that we work on, please just bring them all there. Like I, I want to see that. I want to feel like your home is there because like folks kind of want that from a creative vision at this point. Like, and if they don't, I don't know what to do with them. Like mm-hmm. maybe they're not our clients. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm coming up to a question with this, but you grew up in Dayton, you went to Purdue, which is right across the way in Indiana, then you come down to Atlanta, and then after that, you're sort of in Tokyo. What were you searching for during that time? Being in Tokyo or? No, I'm talking about like the entire journey. Like, was there like a feeling that you were chasing or or like what was your drive Throughout that period of time. I think it's like this unadulterated push for something different, something new. There was like a Twitter post a while ago. It was like, when somebody going to invent some new animals because I want some new meat? Like, I'm like, I'm tired of eating the same meats. And I'm kind of like that guy of like growing up, like I always wanted the new music, but I thought everybody else did. And then as I got older, I still wanted the new music. I wanted the new shoe. If I see, and it's like, this is definitely like a me of all things, like, I see somebody wearing a pair of shoes that I have. I'm like, yep, I got to put those shoes away. Like everybody's like on this Jordan one thing. And I'm like, oh, I just put those away. Like I can't walk out the house. And it's not because I'm a sneaker dude. It's because like, I just feel a certain way. So going to like Purdue, like middle of nowhere, West Lafayette, they had what I thought I wanted, but it was also something different. Like Tokyo was like, yo, this is the wildest place on earth in terms of like the visuals and the culture and the class and the people like language, everything was like, yo, I want to do this. And then I got done doing it. I was like, yeah, we're good. Let's go to the next place. Like it just became this constant hunt for something new, which I still kind of have. But I think as I've gotten older, the combination of new plus, yo, I just like home. Like I like walking out the house, totally feeling like I'm at home. And I think, all those other times, it was me going like, what's the next thing? Like, I, when I got to Nike, like, the first thing I said was like, I think this was a conversation with Tinker. And he was like, what do you want to do? And my first words were like, not basketball. Because I grew up playing basketball. I knew basketball. Like, it was just like, it was a second social life for me. And I was like, I want to do soccer. I want to do something like I have no business doing so I can be in a whole other world to see something totally new and meet new people. Of course, right after I did kids, first place they put me was basketball. But even then, I was like trying to do something that I don't know. I drove everybody crazy because I was trying to do something different. And I think what's interesting is like that question also pretty much pegs what my creative kind of process was like. And it was interesting because Nike figured that out before I did. And so to fast forward, like through all the headaches of my first five, six years of Nike before I got to Japan was what they taught me was that if you put me in a functioning business where everything is great, design is great and everything's working, I will jack it up basically because I ask all the questions of why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Like, what else could we be doing? Like almost getting this to the point to start over. And so they figured out, yo, let's go to places we know should be big that need changing, but the people there aren't ready to change it. So basically I became like one of the people that Nike would throw into a situation that needed to be changed, but they didn't know how to get the people in the business to change it. And so I always say like my first conversation of solving any problem is why, like, why are we here? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? Like, what problem are we trying to solve? If we don't get to the original why, 
then like we're just putting band-aids on things like just cover it up and go about the like let it go to the next day and so i have this underlying like question gnawing at me like yo it could be better it could be like better better it could be like really better so let's get to the why of the matter and so i think going to new places whether it was going to purdue or going to georgia tech or going to beaverton or going to tokyo or coming to new york city it was always like yo i, I want to get to something new with something different and then eventually it came to like i'm ready to chill now like i get me and so how can i provide opportunities for my young team and i tell them all the time like i i don't want you here like, I want you to go to your Japan. I want you to go to your land. I want you to go to your whatever that might be. And then you can come back if this is the right place. But go see the world because it'll make you stronger and give you new points of view that you won't get if you just stay home. What's something about footwear or just like footwear design that the average consumer doesn't understand? Mm. It's funny. We just had a, I think, conversation about why I do shoes. And it's always this funny business thing is that I, for right or for wrong, like I will measure people from like the ground up. They'd be like, what shoes you got on? And it's not always the measurement that people think, oh, you have expensive. Like, no, no, I can kind of take you. Like my stereotype is nothing based on anything else you have other than look, I see what shoes you have on right now and how you're wearing them. And I'm going to make like some calls about you whether I'm right or wrong. And I think that is probably been one of the best articles I always point to for people is uh, Tressie McMillan Cotton wrote for Zora, I can't remember the exact title because every time I look it up, I get lost. It's the reason poor people can't afford to dress poor. And it talks about how the world expects you to, if you go in to apply for a job that's like at Walmart that pays nothing, if you're black, you have to dress better than the job. You have to show up with something that, um, like, you just have to. Otherwise, they're like, "Mm, you're not really right. That's something that other folks don't have to worry about. And I think to some degree that's been sort of ingrained into like my thinking coming from Dayton, Ohio, like with sneakers, like this is kind of what I see. And I think working on shoes, whether it was uh, like one of the things like we approached Yeezy with was like, it should be like the most democratic shoe that like anybody can wear with colors that don't distract or compliment or fight or cause fear. And then the project like I'm doing now, like for personal, like 99 products like it's really like this really basic running shoe that it's meant that like anybody can pull it off uh, whether you're a teacher or you're the student um, whether you're the, like i don't know head of the class or you're the back of the class like it's kind of for everybody and i think that sort of thinking goes into product that most people they kind of write off as, or they kind of don't even think about like they just go oh, i'll just buy whatever shoe and i'll wear it and it's such a like maybe 15 years ago, you could have said that about most of America with cars, that their car really kind of represented what they were doing or where they were going. They put a lot of effort and energy into the point where people just kind of stopped caring about cars so much. It'd be like, oh, I'll just get a used car. Like That still says something, means something, but people would put a lot of energy into cars. Today, people still put a lot of energy into like the shoes they wear, even when they play them down, like, oh, you know, this is just some like throwaway shit. And I laugh because people are like, oh, I don't really care what kind of shoes I wear. I was like, okay, then why don't you wear some bright red clown shoes? And they go, well, that's stupid. I go, oh, so you do care. Like, you do have a uniform. You do, like, have an opinion of what you wear. So you can't say you don't care. It's just that you don't care to keep up with the people who you think care too much about sneakers. So I think in the design process, it's sort of identifying what people want, what people want for function, what people want to say about themselves, and how it, like, fits into their overall wardrobe. Because shoes kind of like nothing else is something that like 
you may wear a different shirt every day and a different pair of pants every day, but you might wear the same shoes every day. Like that's going to say something about you, kind of like your haircut. It's going to say something about you and you choose to be there. And so when you're designing for people, you kind of have to want to be on their person like every day because that's what they might use it for. So earlier you were talking about how you were working for Nike and you were sending home shoes to your dad, shoes to your brothers, how your brothers were saying, oh yeah, my brother designed this shoe, all, you know, all these different kinds of shoes. Can you name some of the shoes you have designed? Like maybe some of the more well-known footwear designs that you've done? I mean, the big ones are probably like the Yeezy 350 V2, Kohan Luna Grand, Max Plus 2009. Like those are probably the bigger ones. And then there's like a billion and one other shoes that made it or didn't make it. Um, the shoes that I've made that sold like 10 times more that were just like, I don't know, there's a shoe called the Nike Basketball Air Glide, not to be confused with the Zoom Glide that came out like maybe 15 years later, but the Basketball Glide was like a $55 white leather basketball shoe that like sold for three years more than, I don't know, anybody could count uh, just because it was like at a price point. But I don't know. The famous shoes, like, it's interesting. Like, I'm less, I think less about those shoes. And people always go, like, you're, you're, you're missing the lead. Like, talk about those shoes. And it's like, nah, I'm more, and maybe it's because I'm old, I'm more interested in the people who I've helped become designers to them um, about their path and remembering when, like, they didn't know any better, just like I didn't know any better. And Ray Butts and Andre Doxy and, like, I don't know were like, you need to work on this. You need to work on that. And like took me under their wing and like made sure I did the right thing. Like that's my, my biggest high. And it's like, I probably get that from my mother of like, yo, it's more about the, I say kids, but it's more about like the folks who I could teach and seeing what they do with it. And also them calling me back. Like I remember when Selene Denver was like, yo, I used to be mad at you when you told me to do things. And now I got an intern and I'm like, yo, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like it just comes full circle at some point. So after Nike, you went to Cole Haan for a couple of years, but you said that Nike had bought Cole Haan, correct? So Nike bought Cole Haan in 88, and then they sold Cole Haan in 2013. Okay. Was it a big shift design-wise going from athletic footwear to maybe like a wider range of footwear that Cole Haan would offer? I so wanted it to be. I would. <laughs> like, it's crazy because I, I went from Japan to Nike running, which was like, probably the biggest leap I made in terms of like learning skill set of being a design and like design leadership. And then I did sportswear for not even a year before like, all right, we just need to get out of Oregon and move to New York city and with the Kohan. And I was so excited like to get the Kohan and learn more about dress shoes and how last work and how you, all the technical benefits and leathers. And like, that was like, it was a whole new thing. I was going to do women's dress shoes. Like this was again, me chasing something like new and different, like, I so wanted that. And probably a week in, Mark Parker shows up. And I had just probably, no more than like a month before that, we had presented like a line that kind of, for at least five years, changed like the direction of Nike Sportswear that was received really well. We got high fives, lots of praise, yada, yada, yada. And he was in that meeting. It was like, this is really good shit. Like, like, it's cool. So about two weeks of me being at Kohan. And I was just visiting for like a month. I was like, yo, I'm gonna learn all this, figure out what's going on. It's gonna be good. Parker shows up and he comes into like, I had this makeshift office and I had like all these pictures plastered on the wall of like Tom Ford and Gucci and churches, like wingtips. And I was trying to learn like dress shoes. And he was like, what's this? And I was like, yo, I'm trying to learn like 
that shoe, this is new to me. Like, uh, I'm excited. He was like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Why don't you do what you did in sportswear? And I looked at him like, okay. And I knew exactly what he meant. He was like, I need you to do something different, not like learn dress shoes. And he meant I should learn dress shoes, but he was also like, don't show up and give me a wingtip, show up and give me something different. And so immediately we did the Lunar Grand like in kind of an hour because it was a marketing guy and an engineering guy who were like, yo, what if we did this? And I was like, yeah, we, like I did Lunar for like three years in running and sportswear, like we can do this in 10 minutes. And so like me learning everything about dress shoes and like fashion, like for three years, it was all good, but it was literally like, let's do something. And to their credit, everybody was right because it became like the hallmark shoe for like, it was the cool shoe for all of like, I don't know, three months. And then it just became every IT, every lawyer, everybody who wanted to wear like a sneaker, but had to wear a dress shoe, wore that shoe to this day. Like, it's still like, I don't know. It's not the coolest shoe in the world, but it's definitely something that, I don't know, every insurance guy has a pair of. Mm. How have you seen footwear design change over your career? What's been both probably, it's kind of, I don't know, maybe annoying to like some old heads who saw footwear design as like one way of like you go to this design school you learn these rules you make something and you draw it you go to the factory and you build it now like to me it's really encouraging to watch folks who basically just photoshop some colors together and throw some shoes together and like it equates to you know they may take the jordan one and flip it in colors that's new and Mm -hmm. The purists to be like, well, that's not design. They just did color. And I'm like, yeah, but at the end of the day, if somebody puts it on and gets value out of it and they feel a certain way, I, like, I think that's valuable. Even if the shoe was already designed and someone added their own touch to it. So I don't necessarily think negatively about it. I do know that like, if you want somebody to make a new shoe, you probably should pay someone who knows how to make new shoes. But also... I've seen plenty of designers and it was true with Nike people who were like, they would draw the most amazing shoe and then they would do colors that were terrible, like completely <laughs> unwearable. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah. Just, just hand that over to my guy over here or let, let her do it. Let, let her put some materials on it. Like you did your job. You made an amazingly functional, beautiful, like physical thing. Now let somebody else like add the color and whatever else that makes it like wearable. And that's a whole nother job. It's a whole nother skill set that just because you drew a shoe doesn't mean you actually have that skill set. So I think seeing that become a more regular part of the industry um, of people being elevated, I think is very worthwhile. Now you've done work with all birds before, and there's a lot of these kind of, I feel like they came about in the last few years, a lot of these minimalist kind of shoe designs, like there's all birds, greats, Vessi, there's probably like a dozen or so of them. What do you think about those kinds of like shoe companies? I love the energy they bring. And like my work with Allbirds was literally like they kind of thought they might want to do something. So they hired me for one small project. And I was like, you guys will be big. Can I like hang out with y'all? And they're like, we don't want that much. We, we don't want that big a relationship. I was like, all right. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. I, okay. I don't, need, I don't need to do that more. Well, it was one of those. To their credit, I think they focused on doing something that no one in the industry thought was the right thing to do. Like if you ask everybody in the industry, like, Hey, would you make a little shoe? The first thing I got, like it gets dirty. Like it gets like, don't do that. They leaned in like heavy and the way they did it through D to C through a community built on like, 
I don't know, starting with Silicon Valley and working its way to Wall Street, like I think they chose a community that traditional sneaker folks didn't have an idea about. And I think to the credit of a lot of those companies, a lot of them then just sort of people followed in those footsteps, uh, no pun intended, to kind of do the same thing as what, like I loved like what Great's mission was, like just to bring something that was quality and simple. I think they may have lost track of that like along the way. And I think that you do, if you try to run with the sneakerheads, like you get lost in like the energy and the fame and the cool kid and the stock X and all the other stuff, instead of just like, it's a business, make a good shoe that people want. And I think there's, I think there's credit in doing that without having to follow. And I think a lot of the brands that are making stuff now, like I kind of like them. They also give people like the benefit of they can walk out their house without having like the same shoe on. Like if you walk out, if you walk in the house with a pair of Vessies on, no one's going to be like, oh, yo, I got the same shoe. And if you do, like there's a bonding moment. But if you tried to bond with everybody who had on a pair of Air Max, like you'd be, you wouldn't go that far. <laughs> okay. I can see that. I mean, I think one thing with those sorts of shoes, I don't know if they are like sitting in warehouses or if they're made to order or something like that. But of course, I think with the rise of these, there's certainly like a increased public perception of easy, well, let's say easy to obtain footwear that wouldn't necessarily be through Adidas or Nike or something like that. Like I've seen shoes on Instagram that were clearly just, I don't know if it's like a drop shipping sort of thing, mm -hmm. but you'll see some shoes on Instagram that clearly are just like parts glued onto a sock that, that they're selling as a shoe. And you think, mm -hmm. Oh, well, this might be good. And then these sort of still shots, but then you actually get the shoes and they smell like industrial strength adhesive and you have to air out your apartment. That may have happened to me. I'm not saying it did or didn't, but that may or may not have happened. I'm, I plead the fifth. It's my show. But I mean, I think what it does is that it at least sort of democratizes the aspect of footwear design where like you have these independent companies designing shoes that maybe are also able to appeal to people that are different from say, you know, like we said before, like the bigger brands that are well known for designing shoes like a Nike or Adidas or something like that. And it forces the bigger brands to sort of innovate when they really may not have had the catalyst to do so. I would equate what all birds that did for sneakers is exactly what Tesla did for electric vehicles. Mm. Toyota has been sitting on like electric vehicles forever and they weren't trying to make it the cool kid car. It was just like electric vehicle. We make it like, so what? And Tesla was like, no, we make the electric vehicle. And I think that's sort of, while there's going to be the evolution of like anything else, you're going to find some companies that make something that's not all that great. And Hey, if you're going to go out there and try everything, you got to be willing to be like, if you're the one who's not going on the open, you're trying every restaurant. Sometimes you're going to find some hair in your food. But if you're the person who <laughs> like wants to be that person who's like, yeah, before anybody else sees it, I'm going to try it. Like, mm -hmm. You may stumble upon the next big thing. Like, I'm curious, like, what are you wearing? What is your go-to shoe at this point? My Oh, Jesus. Oh, boy. It does get personal because I hate shoe shopping. I absolutely hate it. It is up there with going to the dentist is, is shopping for shoes. I do not Why like it. That? I have sort of wide Flintstone-ish feet. And so as a kid, going with my mom to the store to get shoes was always a hassle because one of my feet is decidedly about a half size bigger than the other one. Okay. And also because my feet are wide, most shoes that come in like a medium are way too small for me. Like I can't even get my foot in it. 
So okay. I'd have to get a larger size because that would then kind of, mm. kind of widen the the width of the shoe a bit. But then now I've got all this like floppy toe room at the end. <laughs> and my mom's like, just put a sock in it, like just stuff a sock in it so it doesn't get the crease or whatever. But then that yeah, hurts yeah. while you're walking and you're trying to run. It's a it's a whole thing. So I'm not a big I'm not a I'm not a big shoe shopping person. It wasn't until I don't know, that was well into adulthood that I saw a podiatrist and actually got like my feet measured and, and all this sort of stuff. And I had been wearing the wrong size for well over a decade. Wrong size shoe. Uh, it's like, I wear about a size 10 extra, 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 extra wide, like a 10 4E. And usually what I was getting was, and I mean, you know, growing up, of course, it would change as my foot changed, but like mm-hmm. right now, I usually rock about an 11 is okay. pretty good. But like if one was an 11 and the other was an 11 and a half, that would be perfect. Cause even on the other foot, which is bigger, it's still like very constricting. And most wide shoes are hideous. You're a footwear designer. You can talk about this. The, the design <laughs> for like medium shoes. I mean, the sky is the limit. You get to wide shoes and everything looks like orthopedic shoes. Why is that? So there's a little bit of like the bell curve. And so quite typically, the design goes to, and you'll notice that most things when they're in a smaller size, they can be, I guess the word is, they're more cute, they're more appealing. And yeah, so they're dope. Brand, like I can, like you can get them in different colors and they look nice. And then you get to the wide shoes and it's just like, it's like what I call the Air PE teachers, which are the monarchs from, from <laughs> Nike. Like, that's all yeah, you got. I know, I know. That's probably a cool kid shoe. That became a cool shoe. <laughs> but a lot of it is definitely built on, again, if you're making your money in one area, a lot of brands don't then spend a lot of time like in other areas. And so you get some brands who may find that that's a niche customer. So my guess is you bought more than your fair share of New Balance. Oh, um, my God. Yes. How did you know? You're reading my mind. Yes. There was a time in my 20s where I had not a lot of different colorways of New Balance, but the the New Balance, not the 990s. Those were ones I ended up getting before. But like the, I forget the number. It's like New Balance five somethings. I had those in probably every color. And it kind of becomes your uniform and Mm -hmm. it's kind of okay. But then what what ends up happening, two things happen. Everybody who has that same foot is wearing the same thing, and then you get lumped in a box. Yes. And then it's one of those, oh, you have wide feet, so you have to wear the New Balance. And then there's not enough, let's do something different. And so you have to right. go find the brands that sort of, I don't know, care or will show you something different. And it's, it's, it's not easy. So I think Yeah, that's so it's where- the New Balance 574s. I had them in so many different colorways. Because they, I mean, and on 11, they still fit, they still were pretty wide. But I had those for a long time and yeah there was that association which is actually why i stopped wearing them well that and my podiatrist was like you need to stop wearing these they're not doing you any favors like stop wearing these shoes yeah so what's funny is um it was a podcast or was a a clubhouse and Uh my friend simone runs it um and she had the um president of rihanna's brand on and to hear her talk about inclusivity and design that what Rihanna wanted, she was like, look, there were two things that quickly and easily made making intimate wear 
for a diverse population of women important. One was really easy. And that was just shades of nude, like just what colors you chose. She was like, that was really easy. Every brand could flip that switch immediately and go from like two shades of nude to 20 shades of nude because there are different colors of people. And Mm so she was like, that was actually, it's more of like a decision you have to make. And then it's a supply chain thing and some operational, but blah, blah, blah. It's pretty easy. The really difficult one is when it comes to physical shape and sizing, because one, you have to have people in the building who can relate and understand. She was like, not everybody in intimates is the same size 16. Sometimes you're a 16 up top. Sometimes you're a 16 at bottom. Like it's just different shapes. And if you can't have a real conversation about it, because the right diversity is in the room, is not in the room, then you just end up making like, we just took the same thing and made it bigger. Mm-hmm. And then you don't get the right answers. And then you get what <laughs> she put it, you get what skinny people think fat people want. And she was like, it's, it's not that blunt, but you also get what skinny people think super skinny people want. And she mm-hmm. used those words. But she was sort of getting like, yo, like it just doesn't help. And they don't know. So until you bring people in the room who have, wider feet or like our last version of the and that was one of the things rihanna said is like no when you make the larger sizes it better be just as beautiful on a person as when you make the medium sizes like that's just what it should what should be done and so Mm -hmm. when we were making the next versions of the point i had a lot of flack because i know a few football players who were like a size 15 and our shoe only went up to a 14 they were like jeff 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 like what are you doing (laughs) and so this next batch and it costs money like we had to make molds and we've gone up to a size 17 with these pink shoes and we'll try to go up more but like it costs money to get there and you need people to actually support like so i sent you a link you'll see it the jux john but that shoe comes in like 4e in terms of width so okay I'll you there and you'll try more and oh it'll be different and whether it's your cup of tea or not the idea is that when you wear them you'll know that someone here and you'll see like oh it doesn't have to look hideous. It doesn't have to look <laughs> And it's kind of okay. So I think design can bring that to people, especially in shoes. Yeah. So so to answer your earlier question about what I'm rocking, so I do have kind of my two that I tend to sort of vary between. One is like a all black, like Reebok walking shoe. I don't know what the the name of it is, but it has like this air bubble in the sole. So like it's very bouncy. Like I wanted some just like, straight up like black minimalist sneakers that I could just throw on with anything. And then I do have a pair of Monarchs that I actually had to stop wearing because the cushioning was too much. Like it was like my foot was in like a spaceship. And it's funny because I remember when I first got those shoes, I would get so many compliments on them and I'm like, thanks. And I didn't know if it was for real because I honestly got them because they came in a wide with my podiatrist had recommended it. And when I first put it on, I was like, Oh, so this is what it feels like to walk without foot pain. <laughs> like, like now the shoe actually like, but I, I still have that one for every now and then, but I just bought three pairs of shoes recently. I don't know if this is because I got the vaccine and I feel like I need to go out in the world, but I got three new pairs of shoes recently and they're different in different ways. So one is uh, a Fila shoe. It's okay. the Oakmont mid. And my, my podiatrist had recommended it because it had a thick sole and he's like, you kind of need more of like a, almost like a boot type of shoe as opposed to maybe like a low sneaker type or something. And so I have those and those are great. Those are like ass kicking shoes. Like I love those shoes. And then I got a pair of Hoka Bondi seven. Mm. 
I just got those a couple of days ago, actually. And I might send them back. They're too bouncy. They feel like I'm wearing moon shoes. <laughs> like, if I needed to jump and reach high things, I would probably keep them. But they, <laughs> like, I'm walking and I'm like, whoa, like, I'm, I'm literally like, I literally have a spring in my step is what it feels like. Fails you forward. It's meant to be, it's meant to do that. So that's good in terms of the functionality. It's just that that's not the functionality you're looking for. Yeah, and then I got another, like, honestly, I got a, a card in the mail from DSW that was, like, $25 off a shoe. I'm like, yeah, let me just get some more, like, knock-around shoes. And I got some Skechers, like, slip-ons. They're the mm-hmm. Ultra Flex 2.0 Mercon slip-on sneaker. And they're okay, but, like, one of the shoes fits, and the other one is too small because it's not wide enough for the other foot. So I can still wear them. But they're okay. just like, they're okay. And I mean, after the discount, they were like 25 bucks. So gotcha, I'm like, yeah, gotcha. this is, this is just something I could just throw on and like check the mail or something like that. So, so we're going to get you into some Johns. You're going to be the, you're going to say nothing but good things. And then you have to get some <laughs> see you on the gram and you're going to give all praise if you like it. And if you don't, you never heard of us. So it's all good. I'll put a link to this in the show notes so people can see it. Like I'm looking at it now. The, the Jex NYC John, they come in like this lemon ice yellow like like classroom chalk yellow which is an interesting colorway i like it they also come in gray suede i think there's a gray suede um oh yeah i see i'm scrolling down i see now okay scroll down and so the the yellow is interesting though and that was based on so my brother his kidney started failing his feet started swelling and he needed like wider shoes and so i Put him in some Birkenstocks, which he was good with, but he needed like some actual real shoes to get around in because he's in Ohio and it was winter. And so I was working with this brand in China and they made this shoe for seniors. The name of the brand is Zulis. And so, and the shoe was like, I don't know, it's kind of the way they created it was very much like old people's shoes. Like it just had this podiatrist sort of function first and it just didn't look cool. And mm-hmm. I was like, yo, can we make these in first suede? And then can we make them in like some monotone colors that, I don't know, you think you like look good. And they were like, well, that's not what old people want. I was like, well, how do you know? Like, make them <laughs> in. And they were like, all right. So they blessed us with some pairs just to try out. And yeah. people were like, yo, I can look good. Like, and we kept getting hit with, I don't want to wear them out. And I was like, oh, interesting. Wear them out. Because they were all suede and they were like, I don't want to get them dirty because they look so nice. I was like, that's the point. Like, stop wearing the shoes that you hate because you can get them dirty and wear these. And it was interesting because we made our conservative guess that, you know, we'll make them in gray and we'll make them in yellow, thinking that, you know, well, people will want the gray because that's normal, but, you know, we'll get some daring people to wear the yellow. And it kept going back. Like, I think we sold out of the yellows in most sizes. So huh. if you have your size, it'll be lucky. But for the most part, we have grays left because people wanted, like, they wanted to stand out in a way that wasn't, like, clown. But also, they didn't want to look like, I am the old person. I am yeah, the yeah. old person. And I think yeah. that, again, it goes to, wasn't so much about the design. The design should work. But sometimes it's color and materials that yeah. kind of plays into how people feel. It is an appropriate amount of swag. like i'm looking at the photos like there's this one where this dude is getting into like a ragtop convertible and like his the color of the car and his shoes are pretty much the same i'm like that's kind of dope he's because he's wearing a black jacket it has on yellow shoes and then you see like the black ragtop and the yellow paint like okay bet all right cool well we will definitely talk about that after we (laughs) after 
we stop recording because I would definitely be in the market for these. These look, these look great. And it's interesting that there's this personal story behind the design too. What I get, you know, from just talking with you and learning about your history and everything is that eventually you always bring it back to the work, which I think is something that is indicative of people that really have a passion behind what it is that they do. Like even with the name of your studio being and them, like you're taking the onus and the focus like off of you. It's really about how the work is being received in the world and how people are using it, which I think is super, not just I think super important, but also super inspirational for people to see. Cause I think, especially for younger designers, there can be this want to kind of do the biggest flashiest stuff all the time mm-hmm. or like, like that's the stuff that they want to do that they feel like may point out the thing in their career or like put them on the map or something like that. And really if the work that you're able to do is like really changing people's lives and affecting them, that's hopefully just as, as good as a takeaway from the work that you do. No, I think that's, that's well said. I think even the work that you're doing, like you talked about, like it took you a number of podcasts and a number of like, folks on the outside to like co-sign for credibility to be there with other people. But the reality is you were going to do it because you thought it needed to be there. And I think that's, it's very important for people to understand that sometimes people won't come out to your first show. People won't come out and see like the first game you play in because it may not be great, but if you know why you're there and you keep working on your craft and you get better, I think it then pays off. And like, it doesn't always have to be that I, I don't know, have the biggest show on the planet. Sometimes it's just about, did I do really good work and were people happy? So no, it's definitely whenever we can use our skills to make friends and family happier. And when they bring us new friends and family that we can work with, we're happy to sort of, I don't know, use our skill set to sort of make other lives better. We we're I don't know that we technically announced it. I guess they announced it. Um, we're working with this reinvention lab out of Texas, this group out of Teach for America to kind of, we ran a shoe contest and they got to actually find organizations within their group to design shoes and they got to work on it. And what's interesting is there's going to be a winner and we're actually going to sell some of the shoes that they made. And they were like, oh yeah, we don't care if we want anymore. Like just going through the presentation process, how designers look at things, how they have conversations about things, like just the design process was new to them. And that helped them understand what they bring to education, what they bring to laying out curriculum, which I sort of like, I don't know, I hang out with Chris Simden, who's hip hop ed, like, and Mm -hmm. the way he talks about uh, pedagogy, like, those are things that I take internally as like normal, but they had to go through this class, they had to go through this competition to like, take in and be like, oh, design thinking is not just for designers, like, it helps us. And so... That was really like gratifying to see that like even just our approach and our process could like bring, I don't know, something to other people. So And speaking of school, I mean you're on the advisory board for a school um in New York, the business of sports school. And most recently you became a board member at Knoll. For mm. you, what's the importance of sitting on boards like this? It's Another thing that I sort of got dragged into, um, and some of it's because I'm old, um, I hang around old people and they are on boards and they say, you'll be good at this. I didn't really know what a board did or what it meant. Now that I'm on two, like I can sort of surmise that it's definitely one of the, for most businesses, the biggest form of sponsorship you can get. Because as much as mentorship and like execution are like good, if the people who are sort of guiding the people who are in charge 
understand the entire, I think, operation and process, the better it is for the people who are doing work and the more diverse of an angle you get. And so like at Boss, business and sports school, like it was like one of my best friends on the board, we were having this discussion around college visits. And so Boss is a school in Hell's Kitchen. Most of the kids come from the Bronx and Harlem in terms of who could attend. They're changing up a little bit how who gets into the school, but it's definitely an open enrollment. It's not based on like higher test scores and um, they don't pick who they get into the school. It's just kind of an open free for all um, in terms of kids that get to the school. So it's not built on kids who are automatically going to Harvard, who have like family history and like education and college background. And so one of the things that they promoted, I think for good reason is they want to make sure that kids have an understanding of what college is. And so they go on college tours and so the college tours were happening around junior year. And I said, no, it's too late. And my friend Marie, who works for um, SNY, her son at the same time, I think both of our sons were in college, were in high school and around junior year at the same time. And she chimed in and was like, no, like, you have to understand, like, my son, this is um, the biggest time in his life. He's visiting all these colleges and it's really important. It's like, it's a very, like, it's shaping who they are. And I was like, yeah, but your son has heard about college since he was like five years old. Some of these kids, like none of their family is going or has gone to college. And so this is a new concept. Like they're expecting them to go work. Some of these kids, their family is like wondering why they're finishing high school, like literally wondering why they're finishing high school when they could go work and put like food on the table. Like it's a different conversation. So can we please take them freshman year even just to one college campus, like normalize the idea of college in their brains before they're taking it as ACT, before they're taking a prep test. Like, can we do that? And I think, and what's funny is she saw that and she was like, oh, and because this was happening at the board level, this is well before the teachers had to choose where they were spending money or where they were scheduling time. And so being offering a more diversity of voice, like at a school like that, I think was powerful, but there's quite a bit of diversity on that board. When I got to know, there wasn't that much of diversity of thought on the board. And it was interesting because when it first came up, I was like, are you inviting me on the board because I'm black? And they were like, well, that's helpful. And I was like, oh, are you <laughs> and I was like, well, are you inviting me on the board because I'm a, like, because I'm creative? And they were like, yeah, like there's, it's a design company and we don't have creative people on the board. There's a misstep there. And I was like, oh. And then later on, someone was like, yeah, scary enough, you're also young. I was like, oh, I haven't been young in a while. Um, but I was <laughs> the youngest person on the board. And I think, again, being able to have diverse levels of thought at a board level where it's really only about sponsorship. It's really about giving direction to the real leaders and responsible folks who run something, being able to give them a sounding board and holding them to task on, are you getting the most out of your people and by the most, are you just even listening and can you hear their voices? And I think when boards start to diversify, I think, and I mean, the same is true, like in C-suite, like I have a whole thing about like, I love all my friends who are D and I like experts at every company, but you wouldn't need them so much if the C-suite was diverse, like you'd have other problems to fix because then those folks would make sure that there was a diverse hiring thing. Maybe not all the time, but there'd be more folks to sort of like, let's get after um, diversity in bigger ways. And I think to me, the board level sort of helps usher and push along, I think those movements. So I'm very 
very happy that folks sort of like tapped me on the shoulder. Um, one, I didn't look like the average board person. I also went in saying I wasn't going to act like the normal board, board person. And I think they were actually quite excited that I wouldn't be. So I was blessed to like end up in conversations that they wanted me there as opposed to they felt like their hands were tied about having me. So I mentioned, you know, before we started recording that I had done my research, I read through a lot of articles that you had written up on the Good Things blog, and they're also syndicated on Medium. No, no, I actually want to talk about that. What does writing do for you as a designer? Writing is probably, and this plays into like, I don't know, the background of introversion um, of like, I stumble across my words like if i'm having a conversation i'm one of those people who goes oh i wish i'd have thought about that when we we're talking because i can't think on my feet like that and so being able to write a skill that like my sister made sure i she saw that i had a little bit of a talent my sister's like 13 years older than me so she saw i had a little talent and made sure like my teachers knew and forced me to write more and more when i was in high school and that just became a way for me to almost in a journal way sort of write down what my thoughts were when I knew I couldn't finish them in other ways, or I really didn't feel comfortable talking to other people. It also, I think, allowed me to, and when you get old and have kids, you sort of see that, well, your kids aren't always listening to you. And I, for sure, (laughs) didn't always listen to my parents or my elders. But if you write it down and leave it so that when they're ready to take any of the information, it's there for them. And so for me to write it down like this, and people bring up some of those medium posts like all the time, like, oh, I read such and such. I don't even remember writing it. It's from like 2016, and I might have just copy and pasted it from a Tumblr post from 2012. But it's more of like my journal, this was kind of going on, or a thought that popped up in my head that I may have wanted, or someone asked a question that I wanted to answer for that person, but also wanted to answer for like multiple people. So being able to write to me and it's funny because people often talk like oh you like write the same way you talk and it's like well that should be the same way with everybody i would think and so it's like i don't use complete sentences and i'll stop in the middle of a sentence and just go into the next thing because it's really just my thought and my kids hate it like they'll read and be like you have no focus because they took like real writing classes and i'm like (laughs) you're smarter than me because i could send you to a school that you could be smarter than me so leave me alone but (laughs) <laughs> For me, it's sort of this unfiltered way of throwing down whatever's in my head. And I might evolve like six months past whatever I wrote, but my journal is sort of me documenting uh, my thoughts so that if it's helpful to somebody at the time, it's good. And also there might be hope that there's some things that I'm sort of fighting against or don't want that one day it'll be sort of useless because they'll be like, oh yeah, we don't have those problems anymore. We moved on to new problems, but hopefully that becomes the case. Well, I have to say, I could not stop reading. I think you're a fantastic writer. I think you should keep it up. No one knows that I'm paying you in shoes to say that, right? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Look, I was going to say that before the shoes, but since you... No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, seriously, though. I mean, as I read through it, I think it's important, not just, I mean, as you're talking about to put your thoughts down, but as you also said, for other people to see and not just your kids, but like for other designers to kind of stumble upon this is what it's like for an agency owner when they're working on projects or how do you think about the work that you do and your creative process? Like that kind of stuff tends to not really get shared, certainly not from other black designers in that way. I think I was listening to, I think one of the interviews you had before, and it was, I think you brought up that 
you know, you could throw something in a tweet and how deep does it go, but how long does it actually stick? Like it kind yeah. of gets lost in the universe. And I think when you actually write a book, there's a little bit more staying power. And I think those sort of long reads that challenge you to like follow a story that imparts some information, I think are very powerful. And I, I think there's also just some people would rather have like the 300 page book about a topic. And some people want like a TikTok version of the same thing. And I think everything's not for everyone. So mm-hmm. how I communicate may not be for everybody. Like, I apologize that you had to read through all those, but for some people, they enjoy reading them. And some people are like, yeah, I read like the first three lines and I was good. Way to go. No, I read through all of them because some of them you're talking about different like projects that you've worked on. There was one even about like the recent board appointment that you had mentioned. So like it was, it was just good to sort of see it, see how you perceive the world, like through your eyes and your words and how that all, cause like for someone like me, like I wouldn't know, what that's like, but to read your words on it, it's like, oh, so that's what it's like. Like just to kind of see that perspective is important. No, I think it's, and it's really powerful when you don't have enough voices in jobs from people who look like you, who might be able to say things that sound like you, not only for you to hear and go, oh, okay, this is what it's like when I get there. But also I think I wrote one article about, like one of the nicest guys I know on the planet, he posted on his Instagram, like a photo of the Nike design sort of offsite. It was a picture of all the Nike designers and pretty much all white folk with, you can pick out the three or four people who aren't white. And mm-hmm. when I saw that, like I had like anxiety just looking at the picture because like, I remember going to those offsites going like, this is weird. Like yeah. and not knowing who to tell or who to say it to, except for like people who were there. And we were all kind of like looking at each other like, yeah, but it is what it is. Like someone just posted like the phrase, it is what it is on Twitter. And I was sort of mm-hmm. like, that's a very like dark expression for black folk because it's almost like you're giving up, like a loss of hope. But like, it is what it is. That's sort of, it's not what... I think other people might think it means it's definitely like we're done here. Like there's nothing we can do. Like it is what it is. And I think changing that, like a Nike became like something so many of us focused on that. I don't know. I don't know if we were able to like put a dent in it as much as we wanted to, mm-hmm. but it definitely some days felt like it is what it is. And that picture brought out all that anxiety. And I told him, I was like, yo, are you okay? I'm going to actually use the article. I'm going to write your name and like, <laughs> Say what a good dude you are, but mm-hmm. also explain like this is the truth. And it's funny how many people who reached out to me after on both sides who were like, yo, I thought this and I didn't like I didn't know how to feel and I didn't know what to say, depending on like on each side, which is kind of interesting. And there were some people who were like, yo, like you never acted this way when you were there. And it's like, maybe I did and you didn't notice, or maybe yeah. I was maybe when you knew me, I was like going with it is what it is. So What's the point in telling you about it? Um, yeah. So, no, writing is a way to sort of, I don't know, let people see what it really was, even if you couldn't do it in real time. Mm-hmm. I think it's also, it can also sort of serve as a mirror back to you, particularly in terms of like colloquial language. Like you have one post on here called, Who All Gonna Be There? Which <laughs> is so common, I think, for any person of color. That's they're the, going I somewhere mean, that's, that's like that's mixed company. What you're talking about. Yeah, you're like, who all gonna be there? Like, I need to know, like, what I'm stepping into or something like that. Or even, like, 
there'll be posts that are like named after uh song titles like there's one called shook ones or something like that or even one where you're like breaking down like the cost of a shoe you know or like mm-hmm. the, the materials and everything that go into it because people will i think certainly with the inflated kind of you know sneaker economy now people will look at a shoe and wonder why it costs that much but not thinking of everything that has to go into it with research and materials and all that sort of stuff Right. And what's funny is, I think, and I watch what's happened like in the last 20 years with journalism is that, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, there would be, especially sports journalists, I think that's kind of where it started with like, oh, this is a hip hop journalist. And he speaks in a vernacular that connects to the people and uses hip hop slang and yada, yada, yada. It's one of those. Mm-hmm. Or y'all just letting him write. And <laughs> writing what he would write to his friends, like, and so for me, uh, I think that connection point of calling it shook ones is not like I'm not trying to connect with you, and I'm not apologizing. It's just like you know where it's from, I know where it's from, so that's yeah. how we communicate. Like that's how communication works. Like I don't know any Billy Joel sh- songs to like impart to you how I'm feeling about <laughs> it, so I can't do that. Um, and if I could, then I would connect with other Billy Joel people listening, like no shade right. to Billy Joel, but that's sort of like, I'm just talking the way I talk in the group chats with folk. Um, yeah. so it's sort of like, and I think that was, and writing helped me. I talk about this a lot. Like I grew up swearing like nobody's business. And I don't know if we cool, we know what you're like, I could swear left and right. Writing mm-hmm. helps me like, all right, let's change some of those words. Um, but <laughs> sometimes the bees are the bees. Yeah. And to your point, it also, you know, even I think as it reflected through the makeup of your team, like it shows them that being able to express themselves authentically doesn't make them any less of a professional. What's wild is, and I talk this a, talk about this a lot with folks who are of my age group, who are in this weird late 40s, early 50s, where we sort of went through like a history of like trying to code switch. And like I said, I don't know if I was necessarily good at it. Like, I think I tried it enough, but I don't know that I don't know that anybody bought it. But the idea that young folks don't care to code switch, like they just show up how they show up and talking to like folks who are my age. It's like, yo, don't get caught out there code switching because the young folks will call you out on it and they ain't listening. Like they don't have time for you to be worried about whether you got a bonnet on at the airport. Like it's just not, <laughs> it's not what they focus on. Like, you should right. just be you every day. And it's difficult because we came from an age group where we were taught, like when you show up, you have to, you're in their space. Like, yeah. Respectability politics. Exactly. And it's sort of, I was lucky enough to, and I say this all the time, like uh, people, I have amazing credit. Only because when I got my Discover card in college, it was like, yo, you can either pay this much or you can pay this little bit and all these other numbers about what you can pay for the next six months. And I was like, I'm too lazy to do that. I'm just going to pay the, the big number. And so <laughs> I never had debt because I just paid the big number. So it's not because I was smart and knew, ooh, I, I want to get good credit. It was like, I just don't want to deal with that headache. Same is true about like, I was just like, I don't want to wear a tie to work ever. I don't want one of those jobs. I'm not going to go work there. Like, I just want to wear sneakers to work. I just chose that not knowing it was sort of like going to be like, I didn't choose this because it would make me money. I didn't choose it because it would like provide me money to buy a house and not have to like assimilate so much. I did it because I just like sneakers and I like the culture. And I think 
young folks are more and more like with the technology that exists, they get to do the same. They're mm-hmm. just trying to figure out what it all means because they're being told by older people, oh, well, it's adulthood time. So now you have to like follow in line and you got to wear your hair a certain way. And they're like, mm, no, thank you. But <laughs> then what do I do? Uh, so no, I think it's, I think it's cool that people can be who they're going to be. And old people like me get to help them do that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Yo, this drives me and everyone else crazy is that I want to be able to just walk down the street and not have to go anywhere and everything comes to Harlem because we made it possible. Like, I went from, I don't know, doing product design a few years back to adding in content creation. And now, like, I'm missing a call right now about NFTs, which I had no idea about. But oh, okay, let's go learn about NFTs and the process and like the drops and all this other stuff. And it's one of those, I think, the strategy mindset, the creative mindset, and a little bit of, I think, luck along the way of having some wins. Folks invite us to parties, um, whether it's just me or my entire team. I think people trusting my team as they get better and the team starting to have their own sort of like mentees below them to kind of grow the business for all of us. Uh, and even if they go run and create their own agency, it's all good. Like I kind of want this fun growth to keep, I think I used to say making stuff was like cool. And now I'm to the point where it's like making stuff is taking a different personality given like my thoughts on sustainability. And sometimes it's like not making stuff is the answer. But figuring out how, like, my biggest thing in terms of conversations of the last probably three months has been on housing justice uh, here in New York City. And I think that's not the standard conversation for maybe a creative, but I think the thought process and the connections and the, I think, ideation that myself, my team, the folks I hang out with can bring to the table, just, I don't know, open up the vision on some of those things. And I think that's what I mean when I say, like, putting things and i've always said this like if you can create i don't know some systemic change in like harlem and atlanta and oakland like in places like detroit i think if that starts to stick and ownership becomes like a big piece of it i think then some conversations are really going to be had um and then you're less talking about oh well i don't know if we're giving a chance We're, we're good we did this we're good and i think that's where i'd want to be even if it's not me I'm just hanging around people who are doing those things. That's my five years from now. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So definitely come hang out. For the most part, if you want to find out about all the fun we're having, find us at Good Things, G-O-O-D-T-H-I-N.G-S. I'm sure it'll be in the bio and byline. That's where we have our fun. That's where we give back to the community. That's where we show how we hang out. If you want to book us for business, definitely come to andthem.com. We keep it professional. You can write us checks and we're all good, ready to do stuff. And then definitely, I don't know, we're making some shoes. We're doing apparel necks. Uh, you can see 99 products, some Jacks NYC. My guy Royce is doing Silk City. We got a, a few hustles going on, some fun. So please, uh, you don't have to read all the reading that Maurice is doing. Like, greatly appreciate it. But you can come check out and see some of the creative stuff we're doing. It's good reading, y'all. Don't, don't listen to that. It's good reading. <laughs> Jeffrey Henderson, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think, you know, from hearing your story, from looking at your work, and again, even from the research that I've done, I think to me, there is a certain deep sense of thoughtfulness that you bring to your work 
that perhaps I don't know if, if you even recognize how thoughtful it is in terms of doing work for the community and making sure that you're creating this nurturing space for young creatives and everything. I think it's something that more of us need to see in the industry. Like we need to see, of course, I think just more black agency owners, but also more black agency owners that are kind of bucking the trend or changing the paradigm or showing that it's okay to like be thoughtful and do great work like this and not have to stick to, you know, any sort of archaic or draconian style of running a business that you can, you can do great work and have fun and it can be a nurturing space and, I definitely see that care and thoughtfulness that you bring to your work. And I'm, I'm appreciative of it. I'm sure that folks listening think that way as well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, I'm glad to be on that list of like, I don't know, hundreds of people who you're bringing, I think visibility to, I love what you're doing. So however I can be a part of this, I'm happy to help. Thank you. Big thanks to Jeffrey Henderson, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jeffrey and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast as a whole? Don't be a stranger. Talk to us. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.